You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church or service times or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. So we're currently going through a series which is uh, looking at the kingdom of heaven. And so far we've seen that the kingdom of heaven is where God's will is outworked. It's where God has his way. It's where we yield to that. It's the thy kingdom come, thy will be done kind of prayer and attitude of life. But it's, it's not geographical, but it's in our midst. It's right here. It's close and it's too close to ignore. Uh, and also we've looked at the fact that citizenship is free. That it costs you nothing in terms of your payment but it costs Jesus his life and, and it's more valuable, more worthwhile than anything else that you can pursue in life. Uh, it grows from humble beginnings into a vast expanse. It's a growing kingdom that, that shelters and protects and sustains and causes growth. That is the kingdom of God. And then last week we saw that the kingdom can be counterfeited. That there is a counterfeit kingdom, and we looked at the parable of the weeds uh, and the wheat, the tares and the wheat, and that, that often what the enemy is doing can look identical to what the king is doing. So we need discernment that sometimes those who are inside the church look the same as those who are outside the church, that sometimes believers look like non-believers, and perhaps non-believers also can look like believers. And this was going to be left until the harvest, that's what the passage said last week, and, and that passage, uh, I didn't really get to that <coughs> last week, but no bothers, because I'm there today. Uh, I'm just going to read you the last part of the passage from last week, which says this, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So I said I'd pick this theme back up and you know, I'll be faithful to that. How God will make distinction between those of the kingdom and those of the dominion. Now, let me just say this. This may produce some discomfort in here this morning. It might raise some difficult questions. Things like, what, what happens at the end of the age? Is there such a thing as the end of the age? What is hell? Is it real? It's happy Sunday morning stuff here. <laughs> if so, and I'm sure you've asked this, how can a loving God send people to hell. And of course, one that's pertinent to all of us, how can I be sure that I am safe? How can I be sure that I am safe? This isn't popular. It's not comfortable, it's not pleasant. And I'll be honest, I'm not relishing the idea of talking about this this morning. But equally, I don't want to avoid chunks of the Word of God because they don't yeah. kind of fit comfortably because they're more difficult to explain. And I 
this morning I don't want to say anything that will contradict the goodness of our God, who is a God of love. So I want to say nothing that will contradict in your own hearts and minds the position of God as being a God of love. But equally, I don't want to say anything that would downplay or compromise truth purely because I find it hard in my mind to reconcile the ideas of wrath and grace. So before we open today's word, do you mind if I just pray? I know we've prayed, but I need it. <laughs> Lord, this is not an easy subject, but it's equally something that you speak about a lot in your word. Where, where we have recordings of what you have said, Lord Jesus, you speak a lot of, of this blazing furnace, of, of Gehenna, of, of a, a place of a burning fire. Lord, this isn't easy. It's not comfortable. But we pray that your truth will be heard this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would use this to bolster our sense of awe at your grace and your great goodness in our lives, Lord. That this wouldn't cause us to, to shy away from you in fear, but would cause us to run towards you in awe and wonder because of how great you are. So come, Holy Spirit, you have your way. I don't want to speak words that are out of step with who you are. So help. In Jesus' name. Amen. If we go to Matthew 13, and we're going to look at 47 to 50. <clears throat> Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. Remember Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven. He's always saying the kingdom of heaven is like. And today he says it is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But you see, we can't avoid this because Jesus says it more than once. It's not just a passing of, by the way. And, and so actually we're doing our own faith a disservice if we don't give this some room and kind of try and wrestle with it a little bit. It's easy to take the nice little promises and chunks out of scripture, but there's a whole lot more scripture there. And you're missing out on the fullness of God's wonder and, and how we can be in awe of him if, if we just chop out the bits of the Bible that, that we dislike. So to deal with this, firstly, like a net, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is lowered into the lake. Now these nets, I'm not sure how many of you are fishermen, I got really bored because I, I used to go spinning, which is like, I'm not talking about the fitness class where you your bikes, I've never done that. But I've been spinning and fishing, which is where you cast out and then you bring it back in almost instantly and you try to make it look like it's a fish in distress by waggling your fishing rod a little bit and stuff like that. And I got bored because on Sundays I'd get like three or four mackerel and I'd be like, result. Every so often I'd get sea bass and that'd be amazing. But most of the times I went fishing, nothing, nada, zip. Not a, not a fig, you know, not that I'd be trying to catch a fig in the sea anyway. And what this method was, was they would lower a net and on the bottom of the net there would be weights. 
and the top of the net there would be floats. And then they would gather it in, so it literally gets everything. It picks up everything that's in that water, in that space where the net is lowered. So the kingdom of heaven is, is like a net that's going to gather everything in. In the same way that a net catches all kinds of fish, the kingdom of heaven will catch all kinds of people, rich and poor, black and white, male and female, young and old. The kingdom of heaven will not discriminate in who it gathers in. And the other thing is there's no way to avoid this. There's no out. There's, there's no take the fifth or something like that. There's, there's no way. It's inevitable. We will all be gathered in all kinds of people. And Hebrews 9.27 says this, that we are destined to die once and then face judgment. So in a way, death is like that net that we all face. This confronts two things that are equally inevitable. Death and judgment. Death. Have you ever wondered why it feels unnatural? Despite it being the most consistent thing in all of our lives, if you think about it, of all the what-ifs, of all of the hopes and the dreams and the fears and the anxieties that we have, the one thing that is consistent with all of our experiences for every single person who's ever lived is death. Why does it still feel so unnatural? Does it matter how many, it doesn't matter how many times or in how many ways you've experienced it around you, it still feels unnatural. And we tell ourselves, I've heard people say that death is natural, but what we mean is it's inevitable. It never feels natural. And I would say that death is unnatural. That's why it always feels unnatural to us. No matter how many times we've experienced it in how many ways, it still feels like a horrendous wrench that's unnatural. That's, why? That's not right. This isn't, this isn't how it's meant to be. And the reason is because sown into our hearts is this concept. No, we were made not to die. We were made for more than that. Death is unnatural. It's the result of something that should not have happened. And so death is entirely unnatural. But the other question I'd say is, is death terminal? <clears throat> and the answer to that would be no. Whether you believe it or not, whatever your afterlife narrative in your head is, whatever you subscribe to, death is not terminal. There is something more after that. You know this because it says in Ecclesiastes that he has put eternity in the hearts of man. Even those of us who will say, I believe I'm just going to die, boom, that's it. Somewhere in our hearts that still feels completely unnatural, completely wrong, like a waste of breath. And how on earth can I have purpose in my life? If I am literally just to become dust and nothing more, it matters not what I do or how I behave, if that is the truth. I may as well forget society's norms and do whatever the heck I fancy doing, because 10, 20, 30, 50 years, whatever it is, my life would just be a memory. 
So what's the purpose behind that? Death is definitely not the end. It's the gateway to the next chapter in our experience. And the gateway is this, because we die and then we face judgment. Judgment sounds horrendous because we, we see the gavel in the hand of the judge wearing the funny wig and he pronounces, you are guilty or you are not guilty. <coughs> or, or we see judgment as this, somebody doesn't like me and they've decided that, that I'm not a good person. That's judgment, isn't it? Oh, don't judge me. How dare you judge me? We hear that a lot whenever we speak out against anything that society's doing that we as believers disagree with. How, who are you to judge? That's how we see judgment. But actually what judgment is about is division. It's about sorting out. It's about distinction. Distinguishing between two things. Are you guilty or are you not guilty? That's the core of what judgment is. And in the parable for the fish, death had already occurred at this point. And they were, they were on the shore. And now they were being judged. They were being separated, the good fish, from the bad. Now, we're not talking about rotten fish here. I'm guessing we're just talking about the kind of fish that you can eat and the kind that you can't eat. They collect the good fish in baskets and the bad fish, they throw it away. And Jesus uses this as a picture to say, this is how there'll be a separation between the righteous and the wicked. You know, we often have a really simplistic view of good and evil. Stick with me. Good. We tend to see it like this. Nice people, by our standard. Maybe Gandhi. Mother Teresa. Humanitarian relief workers, philanthropists, paramedics, rescue workers. People who do good things. And then we think of evil as being things like dictators. Abusers, sexual abusers perhaps. They're murderers, violent people. People who try to sell you PPI. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, or, or phone you to try and say, were you in an accident recently? <laughs> we, we tend to have very like, clear distinctions in our mind of what is good and what is evil, and we separate people out in our own minds. But, but the truth is, who are we to decide who actually is good and evil? In, in, in truth, every single person carries something of the image of God, and that is the capacity to love, the capacity to create, and the capacity to judge. Every living person has those abilities, those capacities, and they are given from being made in the image of God originally, even though we are now flawed and we're made in our own image. We still carry those things. But also, every person, every person, is intrinsically susceptible to abusing those godlike attributes. We can abuse creativity to create destruction. We, we can abuse having a loving nature to becoming a love for self-indulgence and selfishness. We, we can abuse judgment to write off and condemn people that we don't like or we feel threatened by or you know, we just don't prefer them to other people. And there's the capacity for violence in the most loving of us. And there's the capacity for love in the most violence, the violent of us. Like it or not, that is true. 
So we can't divide or separate or distinguish among ourselves. We need one who is wiser, greater, and more loving. There's one question, and the answer of this will determine where each individual is placed at this point of separation. And the answer to the question is this, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? You see, if I reject Jesus now and keep rejecting him uh, while I have life, then he will reject me then. Listen, God's not saying, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a sinner by his toe. That's not what God is doing. He's not going, I like you, don't like you, like you, you've got nice hair, you say silly things. You know, he's, he's not doing that. In this respect, it's down to us, our decision to accept him or reject him. Now, how can it possibly be our decision? It can be our decision because none of us are righteous and Jesus has made a way for us to be righteous by believing in him. And therefore, for me to be separated into the righteous basket at the end... I need to choose Jesus' righteousness. Say, yes, please, I will take those royal robes that I don't deserve because without them, I know I end up in this category. Now, in the fullness of time, when will this all happen? This final distinction, sorting out this fullness of time, when the net is full, as it says in the passage, what we're talking about here is the end of the age, the end of this world. Now, maybe that sounds like Hollywood. It sounds like a disaster movie script, uh, like an interesting concept, but an unlikely reality. And I think most people around the world, even though they know there's some bad things going on, really, there's something in us that says, nah, we'll, we'll be all right, we'll figure it out, we'll find a way. Maybe a hundred years back, this would have felt more real. Back at, at the tail end of World War I, where millions of young men and, and women and children had lost their lives in a horrendous conflict, the, the, the likes of which the world has never seen before. And they come out of that, and then the flu hits, which claims more lives than the war. Straight after that. Now, maybe at that point, it would have felt kind of normal to be going, wow, this is it. This is the net in the water. We are being gathered up right now. But we think now that surely with our advances today, this is further from reality. Well, listen, many scientists actually, while having different theories on the how and the timeline, would agree that the Earth has a time limit. The place that we call home is not going to be around forever. And it doesn't matter what your belief system is, many, even most scientists would say there's a timestamp on the earth, there's a, there's a use-by date. Something is going to end life as we know it. So whether or not you know Jesus this morning, whether it's meteorites, whether it's supervolcanoes or giant earthquakes, whether it's a global nuclear conflict, whether it's starvation because there's not uh, enough food in the world anymore, maybe it's lack of oxygen because of deforestation and all the CO2, in the atmosphere. Maybe it's the sun burning out. Take your pick. There are a hundred ways that this world could end. An article in The Independent in 2015 stated that scientists believe that we have far exceeded four of nine critical limits to sustaining life 
on this planet. We've already far exceeded four out of nine. We're pretty much halfway there already. So the fullness of time will come regardless of who you are or what you believe. It's going to happen and then when it happens. And this is the bit that's really difficult. Eternal anguish. Because at this point, for some, this will mean shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Shining with the radiance of Christ. But for others being thrown into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see why I don't really want to preach this today. You will, if you chat to a hundred theologians, you'll find a hundred different theories on the extent of hell, whether or not it's a reality, what it actually looks like, what, what are the dimensions of it. I don't want to get into that today, but I want to say this with clarity, that it's a reality. It is a reality. We, we, we do God a complete disservice if we try to pretend that it's not. You know, I, I met a, uh, a Jehovah's Witness leader once. I was only a brand new Christian, but he came up to me and he started telling me about the Jehovah's Witness faith. And, and I sat down and, and, and listened to him for a bit. Uh, and we talked, and I said, look, do you think uh, I, I would be able to be part of the 110,000? They believe that only 110,000 people are going to go to the perfect heaven, and, and the rest of the, the believers, the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses will live on the perfect earth, and then everyone else just gets annihilated, just in the blink of an eye. I said, do you think I could possibly live on the perfect earth. I know that I've, if, I'm, if I'm wrong, I'm not going to be on the perfect heaven, but I, I believe in Jehovah. I worship Jehovah. I, I'm a bit, maybe in your eyes I'm confused on who Jesus is, uh, but if you're right and I'm wrong, do you, think, do you think God would be gracious and let me live on the perfect earth because I believe in Jehovah? And he said, well, I hadn't really thought of that, but I guess so. Maybe. And I said, but let me get this straight, because if I'm just completely wrong, the worst that's going to happen to me is that I'll just be annihilated. And he said, yeah, you'll just cease to exist. In the blink of an eye, you won't even know about it. You'll be going about your business and then, boop, I'm no more. No conscious thought beyond that point. And I said, well, that sounds pretty cushy. I can carry on living like I am, and, and I might get this perfect earth, but at best, I'm just going to cease to exist. And actually, what I could do is I could go out and do anything that I fancy doing, because I'm just going to cease to exist. So there'll be no consequences. I might as well just please myself. And he was like, yeah, I guess that's true. I said, well, I'm going to stay as I am, but let me put this to you. If I'm right and you're wrong, what's going to happen to you? He closed the conversation at that point and said he had to go. Hell isn't just merely a symbol. Jesus talks about the concept of hell far more than he talks about the concept of heaven. It's a real thing and we should pay attention. It is scary and it's more scary. This is how scary it is. It's more scary than any horror that we can conjure in our own minds. If you avoid scary movies, there are good reasons for avoiding it, by the way, because it's just no good with flutes I have. But, but if you avoid scary movies because you don't like to be scared, well, the worst that we can conjure up in those scary movies is nothing compared 
And you're thinking, but I thought Jesus was kind and loving. Well, he is. Because wouldn't a kind and loving person warn you if there was an impending, unimaginable disaster in your path? Wouldn't that be exactly the actions of a kind, loving person? Now, Jesus talks about this so much. It's not him, him saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to beat you all up, you wicked people. He's saying, please. Understand the reality of this. You need my clothing on you to get into the kingdom of heaven and to avoid this. Please. I'm so, I'm so intent on pleading with you over this that I'm going to take myself to the cross and die an agonizing six-hour death so that you can avoid this. That's Love. That's mercy. That, that God would spare any of us is a sign of his mercy. Because all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And you know that's true for yourself. Whoever you are this morning, whether you are in this room or listening online, you know that you have fallen short even of your own standards. And you've disappointed even yourself. How can any of us expect God to go, you're a good one. I'm going to let you in because you've done really well. We need Jesus. Amen. We still think, how can God do this? And we, we talk about like, the genocidal nature of him wanting to wipe out all of the Canaanites. And telling the Israeli people to wipe out the Canaanites. You know who the Canaanites were? They were sacrificing children on this bronze god called Molech. Molech was this bronze statue god, a massive thing that had his arms out and a big brass plate on his arms, and they used to fire up a red-hot furnace underneath that plate, and they would throw their babies onto that, and there would be drummers in the village who would drum louder as the babies were thrown on so that the parents wouldn't hear their own kids' screams. And you've said, why doesn't God act? And why doesn't God do something in this world that is full of evil and corruption? He is. But when he does, we don't like it either. And we say, God, that's a bit harsh. You know, we reduce the viciousness of history sometimes to a kind of, well, that's a bit naughty. Those naughty Canaanites and their, their silly practices. If there was a country in the world right now that was burning children alive as part of a ritual system, you would have something to say about that. And you would want the UN or whoever to get in there and do something about it. And we would even sanction the violence necessary for that to happen because of the evil of it. Because we can't just reduce vicious behaviour to the kind of naughtiness when the history is close. We couldn't say the Nazis, they were a bit naughty. Because it's too close. We know how evil that was. Many people will say, I'm not harming anyone. Essentially, I'm a good person. Well done. And I mean that. I'm not being sarcastic. Because it's not easy, because everything in our hearts and our minds wants to pull us in another direction. But what we mean to say is, how can God do this to good people? 
By whose definition do we mean good or bad? There is no one good but God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the fact that he's willing to save any of us is a miracle of his mercy. Mm. So is that unfair? Remember, one day, God will let every soul live with the choices that they make. He will let everyone abide with their preference to either have him or not have him. At the moment, if you say, no thanks, I'm okay on my own, I don't want you, God. He, he will respect that and he will leave you alone, but he will keep giving opportunity for you to make a change from there to here. He will keep imploring your heart to choose him. He will keep working, and that's our job here, that's part of what we're here for, is to go to this world and say, please, please come. Because there comes a time, and it's after death, face judgment, where there's no more opportunity to make that choice. It's locked in at that point. Some of the things I did when I was younger were bad. They, they were bad to other people, and they were bad for me, because as a consequence, I carried with me anguish and guilt that are crushing things. And sometimes in the stress of my own actions, I would grind my teeth in my sleep. Uh, and, and in some cases, I was able to make up for my behaviour, make amends with people. And ultimately, I met Jesus, and I was washed completely, and the stain of guilt and shame was removed forever. Hallelujah. Because up until that point, I was verging on suicidal because of the weight of my own sin crushing in. And of course I could blame it on everything else. Of course I could blame it on my childhood and my parents. Of course I could blame it on society. Of course I could blame it on bullies or whatever. But ultimately, the thing that was crushing me wasn't somebody else. It was my own sense of shame and failure that was crushing the life out of my lungs. Now what if there was no way left to deal with the anguish of my own actions? What if there was no way to avoid making the same destructive choices? What if the consequences were to follow me incrementally and there'd be no chance of refreshment? If I, through my life, had acted upon every desire and every impulse to the fullness of those things with no restrictions, well, that doesn't even bear thinking about, does it? And for me, even to exercise my, my rights to the nth degree would mean, by nature, trampling on somebody else's rights. And as I said last week, hell is, is him letting us have our own way. Our own way means not God's way. Our own way means removing him from the equation. Hell is the total and complete absence of the presence of God. The only thing that can hold back the shame, the anguish, the guilt, the torment of our lives is God's presence in our lives. Take that away. There is no filter left. There is no gate left to protect us. There, there, there is no sacred ground that we can go to and claim amnesty. Removing God from the equations means nothing to hold back self-ambition. 
everybody purely able to pursue their own desires. Nothing to hold back violence, nothing to hold back backstabbing and abuse, nothing to hold back the forces of nature, nothing to hold back evil. And so we are to live either as citizens of the kingdom or as slaves to the dominion of darkness. Where is the hope in all this? And I want to finish with an encouragement. I, I, I forget who it was. I think, I think it was the guy who founded the Salvation Army. He said, dangle me over heaven, uh, over hell. <laughs> was it that guy who said, dangle me over hell? That's the best way for me to, to catch the vision to evangelise this world. Show me what hell looks like. And I, I don't fully agree with that. I think I want to get lost in the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. That's, that's how I want to appeal to people. Look at me. The wonderful, beautiful alternative. How could anything compare to that? I shouldn't need to, to lay out how violently horrible hell is because of how wonderfully whole and life-giving Jesus is. So I, I, I want to turn people's eyes. I don't want to be a hellfire preacher that says, you're going to be damned to hell and this, that and the other. I want to say, look at Jesus. He's better than all of your expectations. Jesus is the hope of the world. That he talks about hell more than heaven is a kindness because he's saying, hey, don't go that way. It doesn't show him to be a mean God. It doesn't show him to be like a cruel kid with a magnifying glass trying to get the ants. That's not who God is. God loves you deeply and will go to incredible lengths to warn and rescue people. That's grace. Even using his own perfect life to provide perfect cover for those who turn to him. And Jesus is the good fish on our behalf. You know, when it comes to that sorting out good fish, bad fish, good fish, bad fish, we're all bad fish. <coughs> all of us. We all belong in that bucket. But, but Jesus says, I'm going to be the good fish on your behalf. I'm going to be everything that you need to be in order to share in this wonderful eternity in my presence. I'm going to give you what you need. And all you have to do is say, yes, please. <coughs> yes, please. God doesn't want you or anybody else to die and suffer in anguish. He does not want that. Peter, uh, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As believers who have turned to him, we've come in repentance, that turning is the repentance. Colossians 3 says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. It's a done deal. Jesus is in your heart this morning. You know Jesus is your Lord and Saviour. You have been raised with Christ. So, set your hearts on things above. Don't set your hearts on things like hell. Set your heart on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. That's already happened. This inevitable thing, this unnatural thing, has already occurred in your life. You have died. Yes, your body's going to cark it one day. But you've already died and you've been raised to life. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Yeah. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, will appear, then 
you will also appear with him in glory. Is there such a thing as the end of the age? Yes, there is. Is hell a reality? Yes, it is. How can a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't. We send ourselves by rejecting him. How can I be sure that I am safe? Christ died my death and I am raised with him. Amen. Amen. Amen.